So when I was in seminary, they had us do this exercise where you were supposed to pick a person in the Bible that you thought closely or close enoughly resembled you or your life um, and preach like a three-minute sermonette on who that person was and why you identify with them. So when it came my time to choose a character from the Bible, uh, I looked for someone who was a very passionate person uh, because coming up, especially in my younger days, um, I don't know if it reads the same way now, but I was known for being a little bit of a fireball. Side note, has nothing to do with the sermon, fireball candy should be banned for all time. <laughs> Here's why. A week before Thanksgiving, I saw a little fireball. This has nothing to do with anything we're going to do today. A piece of candy sitting on a desk. And I thought, oh, that looks good, and I ate it. And the next day, I had a blister on the roof of my mouth. And my mouth was sore, and it took me four days to realize that that piece of candy tore up my mouth. Anyway, fireball, bad, remember it, quote me. Hope there's no lawsuits coming. Uh, Anyway, so uh, I was a bit of a fireball. And you know what, actually, I think a lot of people now that I think about kind of got burned in some ways from knowing me. See what I did there? Um, Not in such a terrible way, but I didn't always know how to express my faith very well, but I really wanted to express it. And I I just like to be sort of out there. When I would preach sermons, uh, you would hear a lot of phrases like, don't just do it, do it all the way. You know, little catchy, pithy things like that. And I identified a lot with a character uh, in the Bible known as John the Baptist. John was a fiery guy. He lived out in the wilderness. He wore crazy clothes. He ate crazy food, some things that... Uh, particularly in my younger days, I could really identify with. And he was all about all-out commitment. And he made some people angry by the way he preached. But he also drew a lot of people in. There was a big difference between John and I, though. John spoke to a different audience than I was speaking to in my normal everyday life. When John was out in the wilderness, people came out to see him. They were sort of in this position of wanting to be challenged, wanting to be pushed, uh, And I would go to people whether they wanted to be challenged or pushed or whatever. And so there's a little difference there. And John did his work in a place that is referred to in the Bible just simply as the wilderness. Now, in the Hebrew scriptures, the wilderness is a symbolic place of transition, a place of becoming, a place of new beginnings. Last week, if you were fortunate enough to be here, you heard Michael talk about the wilderness being a desolate place, a place of waiting, but also a place with potential to bloom. The desert, the wilderness, was the place where the Hebrew people lived for 40 years after God delivered them from Egypt. And as such, it was the place that they became a nation. They became Israel in the wilderness. They were tested, they were developed before they entered the promised land. Jesus, after his baptism, goes off into the wilderness for 40 days of temptation before starting his very profound season of ministry. If you can remember the first time, maybe that you moved away from home, when the first time you had the chance to make your own decisions, to decide who you were going to be, how you would live, That's roughly comparable to the symbolic meaning of being in the wilderness. 
In fact, any challenging, difficult, hopeless situation in your life, if it's ripe for growth, if it's ripe for discovery, if it's ripe for transformation, can be seen as a wilderness, a wilderness area, a wilderness season in your life. This season of Advent, the season of remembering the arrival of Jesus into the world and anticipating his appearance in our own lives, let me ask you, where are you right now? Is there an area of your life that feels like a desert? And are you okay with that? Or would you like to see something come alive, something bloom? And I would just say, if there is any part of you that feels just a little bit of hope, enough hope maybe to get you out of bed this morning and bring you here to listen to this John the Baptist wannabe, then John has something, I think, to say to you this morning. And he has some shocking good news for you because that's the way John was. He shocked people. You guys want to hear the story? All right, good. Let's hear it. Starting in verse 2, this is Luke chapter 3. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went to all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, quote, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all the people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to free the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Pretty happy-go-lucky sermon there. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but the one who is more powerful than I will come, and and the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. So, I think you can tell right off the bat that John is ready to challenge his hearers. And I wonder, can we tell that? How about this opener? You brood of vipers. Who warned you to free from the coming wrath? Now, can you imagine if I led into our sermon today saying something like this? Good morning, you lowlifes. I don't know who warned you to show up here. Hiya, scrubs. I'm not sure that would go over too well. Although maybe old school Brad would have. But... 
I think that John was really intentional in the way he addressed the crowds. And not only does he have gathered around him a group of people who would mostly be looking to hear and experience something new and different. They, they go out to the wilderness to see him. But he also has a very specifically stated mission. So it says, as it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all the people will see God's salvation. He has this mission. And his mission is to prepare people for the Lord, to make straight paths for him, to get the desert ready to bloom. Now, how's he going to do this? And I think, actually, when we hear this, this kind of language can kind of get lost on modern hearers because we live in a different era. In the time of John the Baptist, it was uncommon to build a road. Roads were built because people traveled a certain way over and over and over again. It sort of got worn out and flattened down, but they weren't like super efficient or good roads. The only time you actually built a road was when a king was coming to visit in Isaiah's day. Because when a king king came, a king came with an entourage, chariots, servants, people, stuff, right? They didn't just come, or he didn't just come by himself. So you had to build an actual road so that the king could come. And the king visiting a city or region was considered a major honor. And so they would build roads. They would bring down mountains and lift up valleys and smooth out paths so that the king could come. So John's mission is to prepare people basically centered around one question. Are you ready to meet a king? So how can we prepare? What can we learn from John about preparing to meet a king? You see where I'm going? Probably Jesus, right? How can we encounter Jesus now? How can we prepare the way in our own hearts during Advent to meaningfully connect with him? And to be ready, I think we see at least three things that he encourages. And the first is that we repent. Now, repent. That's a fun word, right? Usually when you're thinking of sermon titles and you want people to come to church, and you know it might end up on the internet, you don't title your sermon, repent. Because no, not many people are excited about the idea of repenting. But I think most people, including myself most of the time, misunderstand what repent actually means. So, for example, a lot of us, when we think about repenting, we think it means we need to feel bad about ourselves, just so bad about how bad we are and all the bad things that we did, and just so ashamed, proving to God how bad we feel about how bad we are. So, if that's your perception of what repentance means, you may see John's comment, you brood of vipers... And think, okay, yep, here we go. That's not super exciting or encouraging thought, is it? The next way that a lot of people think about repentance is they think this, I need to change the way I live. And you may have heard that repentance means turning and going another direction. And so when you hear John's admonishments to share cloaks, to be honest in dealings with people, And you might think when you hear that, yeah, I get that. Okay, I need to live differently. I need to do something different. But actually, neither that's actually a misconception as well. And neither of those approaches is an accurate understanding of what John is preaching. Here's what I mean. 
in Greek, which the Christian scriptures were originally written in, before it's translated in English, uh, the word repent does mean change directions. But it refers, actually, believe this or not, not to action. It actually refers to the human heart. It's literally a change of heart. So it's not about how we see ourselves, primarily. It's about how we see God, how we view Him, what we expect. It's also not actually about what we do. It's about why we do what we do. You notice that John says that we should bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So the fruit comes out of repentance, but it's not actually the repentance. Repentance is concerned with why first, not what. And to me, actually, I think this helps make sense of it. I I find it interesting that John uses vipers to address his listeners more than just, wow, that's a pretty cool, harsh kind of word sounding, right? There are a lot of different ideas about why John uses the word vipers. But it strikes me that the first snake that we see in the Bible is Satan in the Garden of Eden, tempting the first humans to disobey God. But his tactic is an interesting one. He doesn't go on and on about how great the fruit is that they should eat, if you know the story. He says, oh, God tells them not to eat the fruit. The snake says, oh, go ahead and eat the fruit. But he doesn't say, go ahead and eat the fruit because, oh, dude, it's the best tasting fruit you've ever had. It's so delicious. It will blow your mind. You will never eat any other fruit again after you have this. What he says is, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, the snake says, God doesn't have your best interests in mind. And the motivation to eat the fruit is not that it'd be so delicious, although it does look good. The Bible says it looks tasty. But it's to take care of themselves, to not trust God, to not believe that God is for them. The question is, is God for you? And that's the first question often that repentance asks of our heart. The call to repentance is a call to change the attitude of our hearts first, to believe that God is for us. What is your expectation of God this Advent? Seriously, what are you expecting? And I'm asking partly because I see this in our passage today, but also because I've had at least two conversations this past week with people who are like, I'm not really in Advent this year. And as I ask some questions, we chat a little bit more. It's just like there's a lot of people just feeling a certain level of malaise. A lot of people feeling like the world is really dark. You know, and we've been working on a candlelight service, which is coming up next Sunday night. And I looked back two years ago at the topic. You know, the, the service, there's a lot of common themes. We sing carols. We hear the story of Jesus. But usually what's going on in the world around us comes up somehow in the candlelight service. So two years ago, it was just after Ferguson and all the stuff that was happening there. A year ago is after the Syrian uh, refugee crisis started, right? Coming into this year, those things are still going on, or the issues that were raised by them. So Ferguson isn't happening in the same way. The Syrian refugee thing is sort of happening the same way, but all, nothing has been resolved. And here we come into Christmas and Advent again after one of the most discouraging for everyone election cycles we've ever had, and people are thinking this world is dark, this is heavy, and the expectation that sometimes just automatically comes with Advent and celebrating the coming of Jesus in the world just isn't hitting for people. 
But here's the thing I think to remember. And this is what I think Advent can remember us, help us remember. And this is why I think if you have the opportunity to come next Sunday night, it'll be worth your while. The story of Advent, when you read it, is a story of a very, very dark time. It's a time of oppression. There's an occupying army in Palestine. People are discouraged. People are waiting. People are losing hope. And it's into the darkest of times that light comes, that Jesus comes. That's what Advent is. It's the advent of the light of God breaking into a very dark place. It's not the story of light breaking into a place of rejoicing where everything is going the way you want it to go. It's the opposite. It's light breaking in to a place that really needs light. You know, a few years ago, way few years ago, I shouldn't say few, a lot of years ago, when I was a small boy, my family, we used to travel, and we would always drive. We never flew anywhere. And so we would, my parents liked to stop along the way at natural sites. And natural sites in the Midwest are caves, generally speaking. There's not a lot of Grand Canyons in the Midwest. And I remember we'd go in these caves, and on a few tours, they would make a point about how dark it is in the cave. Like, there's no natural light. And so what they do is they turn off all the lights to make their points, and it's pitch black, and you can't see anything. And the, the cliche, but the truth is you can't, you can't see your hand in front of your face. You can't see anything. It's that dark. And on one of these tours, I remember the tour guide went around the corner with a single flashlight, one little flashlight in the absence of light, turned it on, lit the whole place. Now, she went on to do a little bit of a cheesy thing where she, like, did a big shadow thing, put the hand down in there and all that stuff. But the point that's, that remind, I was reminded of was how dark it was and the difference that light could make and that light wins. Repentance for you this season might be hoping for something this Advent turning your heart towards God, believing that he's still good, that light can come into any circumstance. Can you anticipate light in dark places? This is where repentance starts, in our hearts. But of course, it it doesn't stop there. The second thing is to respond. John is very clear that repentance should produce change. So obviously, if you read this, he's like, share what you have. That's a very practical action. Don't cheat people by collecting extra money. That's a practical action. Don't oppress people by using your power to make them do things for you. That's a very practical thing. All of these are actions, right? So repentance leads to action. It's not just a, oh, my heart is renewed. Hallelujah. I don't do anything differently. It moves us to things. But if you'll notice that all of the actions I just mentioned, they feel like a loss to someone, to the person who's taking that action. Like you're losing some power, you're losing some resource, you're losing. And so another question is, are you open to changing something in your life, letting go of something, losing something to prepare the way to meet God, to open your heart to a new light? 
So another way to answer that, ask that question is, is Jesus a good enough? We talked about, is God for us? But is Jesus a good enough king to obey when he commands these things that sound a little like they wouldn't help us, like we'd be losing? Turning the other cheek, uh, all kinds of crazy stuff, right? And will your roads adapt to him or will you expect him to adapt to you and take your roots, whether they're curvy, high or low, but they're not very prepared? And we do this without realizing it. And as such, we kind of end up developing our own maps, our own culture maps that we expect God to progress through. Who will adapt? Who's preparing the way? And we don't realize it, but sometimes we say to God, you have to come into my life this way. You may take this route, but you cannot come through here. I'm open to you if you come in this particular way or fashion or timing or season. And I think John is saying here to his people, if you want new life in the desert, if you want your desert to bloom, preparing to meet the king means meeting him on his terms and dropping all the ifs. The ifs have to go. A simple way to put this is to say, try something that stretches you. Do something. Do something. This is something I'm telling myself in my life. Do something. Don't just expect things to happen. Take a practical action. Let me ask you this. What is your current hope for light in the darkness? Some of us were feeling at the edge of hope, like we don't have a lot of hope, but we still hope in certain things because we're doing certain things, right? What is your current hope for light in the darkness? What I'd like to suggest during the season, during Advent, try trading a bit of that for an action that Jesus prescribes during the season and then see what happens. So, for example, a lot of us, it's just bred into us. We, when we're looking for hope, we trust in money. If we have enough money, it makes us, we hope it will make us feel secure. So, how can you give a little bit of that away? It's Advent. There are all types of opportunities to be generous. Can we trust that it is more blessed to give than receive? One of Jesus' crazy teachings. This Advent, for example, we're taking a special offering. We're doing it every week to support our Justice and Compassion Fund. That's the fund that's set aside to support those in need in our community, to give to things outside of our immediate community, things like the Thanksgiving Basket Outreach, where we helped 100 families two weeks ago. Give to that fund. Take this week, pray and consider how God might ask you to give to this fund, above and beyond what you normally would be generous in your life, And do it at our candlelight service. Make it part of your worship experience. Let Advent be a way to turn the focus off of yourself and to a light coming into darkness. Or find another worthy thing or another way to give. Another, maybe it's a resource that you have that you count on. Find a way to share it with others. Politics. Are you feeling burned, anyone? Some of you? Maybe your family didn't vote the way that you did. Remember Jesus said, love your enemies? Gosh, that's easy to say. 
it's really hard to love people you don't understand. So before some crazy action even to love someone that doesn't make sense to you, you're going to be seeing more of your family, probably. What can you do to understand them? They're a little safer, aren't they? To understand them better without the goal of putting them in their place or showing them how wrong they are. A way to get outside yourself and try to engage with people where they are. If we're not careful, even repentance can turn into self-focus about who we are, how terrible we are, or something like that. And so to battle this, John introduces a practice that would lead away from self-focus, and it's our third instruction from him today, and that is to rejoice. So we'll get to rejoice in a second, but I want to examine the practice that John uses to get to this first. So repentance, when it gets out of whack, when it becomes just about what we do and not why we do it, when it makes us feel bad about ourselves, is when we become focused on ourselves instead of on the coming king, is the analogy we're using here. So to combat this, John did something that he is very famous for. Does anyone know what John did? John the Baptist. What do you think Baptists do? Baptize people, right? So John baptized people. Oh, and by the way, if you're interested in being baptized, because I've heard from three people in the last few weeks, write baptism in really big letters on your Connect card, and I will, uh, we at the office will reach out to you, make sure you get information, let you know what's going on. So John baptized people, but John baptized people in a way that had never been done before. So first of all, John baptized Jews and Gentiles alike. So baptism had always been a a conversion rite, a way to become Jewish. It was for Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. However, John insisted that everyone be baptized, Jews, Gentiles, everybody. Second, he did the baptizing. Baptism had always been self-administered. You would baptize yourself. But John did it by baptizing people personally. He would do it. People didn't baptize themselves with John, but they always had before. Third, he admitted that his baptism was substandard, that it kind of stunk in some ways, that it wasn't good enough, and that there was a real baptism to come that was going to be better than his. So basically, everything John does here is a really humbling experience. So no matter who you are, you had to be baptized. You couldn't do it by yourself, and it really wasn't going to be the best baptism anyway, but you should still do it. In other words, our best efforts, whatever we've got going, whatever we're working on during the season of Advent, they can prepare us for what we need, but what we really need is the king, the guy who's coming next after John, after he prepares the way. And John points people again and again to Jesus and has them take actions that prepare their hearts to follow him when he comes. But he has an interesting thing. He says, when he comes... Here's what's going to happen. I will baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, his winnowing fork in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, when you hear that, is that really good news? There's stuff about winnowing forks, Sounds kind of scary, doesn't it? 
Unquenchable fire sounds a little scary. Might make a good movie for Java flicks, but I don't want to be anywhere near any unquenchable fire normally. And at first, I got to admit, this sounded to me like John was saying that Jesus was going to come at me angrily and sift me. And if I wasn't good enough, he was going to throw me away and burn me up. Merry Christmas. (laughs) But (laughs) I don't think that's what he's saying. I I can tell you probably thought that's where I was going. What he is saying is that Jesus is going to give me, this is what I think he's saying, what I need to live the life that I need and want in the kingdom of God. So he talks about a couple of things. Power, he's saying, is going to be poured out into those who follow Jesus' life. Baptism, this being baptized with the Holy Spirit thing, is indicative of being saturated with something, dipped under, soaked in the Holy Spirit. And then he talks about fire. Fire can be scary, but in the right context, fire can be awesome. And in this context, I think we see fire burning away the junk that gets in the way of knowing God. I don't think this is about throwing me into fire. It's about the possibility of all the crap that builds up in my life being sifted out of me and burned away. In verse 12, it says, He's ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Sounds scary, but let's think about this. Then he will clean up the threshing area, storing the grain in his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. The metaphor may not be so easy for us to understand because here, who, who's ever seen a winnowing fork? All right, one person. And I know her story. She spent a lot of time on a farm. A lot of us haven't. A winnowing fork is what you would use to separate wheat, the grain, from the chaff. So the, the, the grain is what you can ground up. You can make bread and pita and all kinds of tasty, del- delicious things, right? But it was surrounded in this chaff stuff, which was nasty. You can't make anything out of it. So you would toss the wheat up in the air. The grain was heavy, it would fall to the ground, and the chaff was light, it would get blown away. So you're tossing this at the winnowing fork. is isn't going to stab you in the gut and twist and spill your guts out. It's just going to toss the grain of your life up in the air. So things get tossed up, but the stuff that needs to stay stays, and the stuff that needs to go, goes. I think John says that this is the work that Jesus will do in your life that he will separate the wheat from the chaff, the good from the bad, the meaningful from the insignificant. And some people, and sometimes in our lives, we may interpret that as a threat, but I actually think it's a promise. Jesus wants to clean up our lives. He wants to get rid of everything that is useless and harmful so that we can experience and know God and his purposes in our lives, so that our deserts can bloom. You can't make bread from chaff. If you want your bread to be worth eating, you, the grain has to be good. And in the same way, if we want our lives to produce good results, if we want to bloom in the desert, we have to get rid of the chaff. We have to get rid of the junk. So, instead of throwing me away, or throwing you away, he's empowering me to be everything God's made me to be. And this is why with all of this scary language, or what sounds scary to us, John can actually say that he brings good news and how it can fit into our sermon series about good news. And this, coming back around, is our reason to rejoice, that this is what God wants for us, this is what God promises for our lives.
And that as we celebrate the coming of Jesus into the world, this is what we can remember in a dark time. That repentance is taking our hearts and turning them in a Godward direction. And doing this in a way that brings change that is focused on God and not ourselves. So that we're open and we're prepared for his baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire, which is a good thing. That brings power to our lives to live the lives that we always wanted in the first place while burning off all the junk. And as we do, this is when our deserts bloom. This is when water comes into the crevices and beautiful things spring up. And so for the rest of Advent, let's celebrate that. No matter how dark you feel like these times are, This is what Jesus wants for you. This is the hope of Advent. Not that everything is hunky-dory in the world, but that light can come into the darkest places and make the biggest difference. Let's pray. Father, we just, uh, you know, a lot of stuff that's going on is much bigger than us. We can't feel the way we want to feel. Um, and sometimes I don't know if it's even worth trying. And so what we do, God, is offer our hearts to you. Because you we can trust. You're good. You're for us. So we pray for grace just to wherever our hearts are now, in the toughest areas of our lives, that we turn towards you. We open ourselves to you. Pray you come in and throw things up in the air just a little bit. You give us ideas of things that we can try that are practical, that can open us up even more. And we pray that our lives would be more saturated with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're on the worship team, come